today we are going to be continuing and actually concluding our series in the New Testament letter of James. We're going to be reading from James uh, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, the last two verses of this letter. And so if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open it up and find James chapter 5. And if you don't have one, don't worry, the words will come up on the screen for you to read along with us. While you're finding that, just a quick reminder of what we've been looking at over these past weeks uh, as we reach the conclusion today. So the, the main theme of the letter of James, as we've seen in these last weeks working through it, is on godly behavior, uh, obedience to the word of God, obedience to the teaching of the Bible. Uh, James doesn't actually go into lots of detail when it comes to beliefs and doctrines. He, he actually assumes that background. He assumes that, that his readers are going to be familiar with that. Instead, actually, James focuses on the, the behavior that should flow out of that. He focuses on living in obedience to God, living in obedience to the teaching of the Bible. Uh, And so uh, in that focus on our behavior, in chapter one, James writes, don't merely listen to the word, uh, do what it says, obey it. Later in chapter one, James insists that true religion that flows out of an understanding of God's word uh, finds its way out in care for orphans and widows, for those in distress. Uh, In chapter 2, he warns us about the the sin of partiality, of treating people differently based on our perception of their status or value, and instead insists that we should treat people with equity, that that we shouldn't give preferential treatment to one over another. Uh, He goes on in chapter 2 to say that faith, actually, which fails to find its way out in concrete action is futile, it's dead, it's, it's meaningless. He insists that genuine faith in Jesus, a right understanding of God's word, will always result in action. It will always result in love for God and love for others. He reminds us in chapter 3 that following Jesus should affect our speech. It should affect the words that we choose when we speak to others and about others. In chapter 4, then, James helps us look at who is really in control of our lives. Have we truly surrendered control to God, or are we still grasping for it for ourselves? Are we following God's way and God's wisdom, or do we think that we know better and we're seeking to go our own way without regard for what God's word has to say about it. And in chapter 5, as we've looked at in the last two weeks, James has challenged us about our, our relationship with and use of money and possessions. And he's insistent that in every circumstance, the highs and lows of life, the good and bad, in, in health and in sickness, that Christian people are praying people. He's spent time in this letter challenging us to keep on track as Christians. And every one of us, if we're honest, as we work through this letter, as we read these verses, week by week, 
chapter by chapter, if we're really honest, find ourselves going, oh man, like, I've, I've like fallen short again. Like I fail in that regard again. Like, nope, I'm not there yet. I struggle with that. I feel convicted about that. And as we work through this letter, we feel convicted of our sin and our shortcomings. We, we, we find as we measure ourselves up against it that, no, I, like, I don't measure up. I put too much trust in money or I find myself judging people instead of treating them with equity. I, I actually like to go my own way. I like to be in charge rather than surrendering to God. I, I want people to serve me instead of looking for opportunities to serve others. And so it goes on and we feel convicted as we read these verses. And I want to say as we come to the end of this series, that that is a gift to us. Because actually it doesn't need to lead us to condemnation. You see, we could take that and we could just go away feeling weighed down and burdened and condemned. But instead, that conviction is an invitation to confession and repentance. It's an invitation to us to to come to God and to ask for forgiveness and to ask for his help to live out his commands, to live in a way that pleases him. You see, the aim of the Christian life is to be shaped, to be conformed more and more to the likeness of Jesus. None of us is perfect. I hate to break it to you, but you're not perfect. None of us is, and none of us will be this side of heaven, but we can all make progress. And this letter, God's word in its entirety, helps us to do so. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you have still got space for growth. And if you're a Christian, you'll never stop confessing and repenting and needing to find forgiveness of your sins. But the great news is, is that he's always faithful to forgive. See, understanding the grace of God in this way frees us from feeling like we have to be perfect. It frees us from feeling like we have to have it all together because actually we can recognize that none of us do. None of us is perfect. We can be honest with God and with one another about our sins. And we know that God still loves us and still accepts us and still forgives us. This is, this is good news, isn't it? James reminds us in chapter 4, we read a few weeks back, that God shows favour to the humble or extends grace to the humble, that there is always more grace for those who turn to him and admit their failings and their shortcomings, admit their sinfulness and ask for his forgiveness there is always more grace and my hope as we've gone through this series is that if nothing else is that that is what you have discovered that whilst it may have been challenging that perhaps as we've read these words together and felt convicted of sin my prayer is that you've also grasped that this word is God's gift to us. 
that as he wants us to grow more like his son, as he, he wants us to live free from sin, he actually it's because he wants us to experience and enjoy true freedom. The delight of living the way he designed us to for our good and for his glory. That living in accordance with his word, which reveals his wisdom for his world. As we hold it up like a mirror and we see our shortcomings, it's an invitation to come and find forgiveness and an invitation to grow more into his likeness. This is part of God's plan and design for his people. You know, Jesus, just before going back to heaven to be with the Father, uh, commissioned his followers to do something. At the, the, the outset of the church, he gave this commission. He said, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and what? (laughs) And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We're commanded as Christians to go and make disciples. Well, what are disciples? Disciples are, are followers of Jesus or imitators of Jesus, people who are growing to be more like him and part of how we do that, a huge part of how we do that is that we are supposed to teach and be taught to obey his word, to obey everything that God has commanded. And that's what James has focused on through this letter. This letter is rich with teaching about what it means to live in obedience to God's will and God's word, and God's ways. So with all that said, against that backdrop, having read and considered all of those things, how does James conclude his letter? What is his his kind of parting encouragement to us as we come to the end of this series? Well, let's read together and find out. From chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, James says this, My brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The first thing we notice then in this concluding statement is that James writes to them as brothers and sisters. He he writes, my brothers. Uh, The NIV has added sisters to just help us understand that the term he used uh, meant uh, just fellow believers, brothers, but it actually doesn't just apply to men, it applies to men and women. Uh, So they've inserted that to help us there. But James wasn't writing to a specific local church or a small group of people who he knew well. He he writes, he tells us at the beginning, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And we said in our first week of this series 
that he was writing to first century Christians from a Jewish background who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They were dispersed across the nations. There is no way that James knew every person he was writing to. He hadn't met them all. No way. And yet he writes using this term of close familial relationship. It's actually the eighth time in his letter that he has used this expression, my brothers or my dear brothers. And actually, there's another seven times that he's referred to his readers as brothers without kind of adding the, the, the my brothers or my dear brothers. Just he, he inserts it all over the place. James grasped thoroughly and was eager to express that all Christians everywhere are united in Christ Jesus. That all Christians are adopted into God's family, that that we share this common identity that, that goes beyond ethnic or cultural boundaries. We are one family united in Jesus. And with that perspective, out of a deep care for them, not as parishioners or students or acquaintances or just someone who share a common interest or or people who uh, kind of have the same moral code. No, he understands their unity in Jesus and out of that place, he writes to them with real care and concern as my brothers. Guys, we need to get hold of this, like James had. We're family, Here at Foundation, but also with other Christians in our town and indeed around the world, we are family and we should care for one another as such. God doesn't bring us into relationship with him in isolation. He saves us and he adds us into his family. And that is both a beautiful reality, but it's also a purposeful reality because I need you and you need me. That's the way God designed it. James wants us to know that we're family and if we're going to grow in maturity as Christians, if we're going to live out the things he's written to us in this letter, that we need one another. James continues, brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth. This is interesting because we need to remember that he is writing to Christians or at least to professing Christians. So he's writing to those in the church and he says, if one of you should wander from the truth. Well, what does that mean? What's he talking about? What does it mean to wander from the truth? Well, he's addressing belief and action, uh, believing false doctrine or or twisting God's word or or believing something that is not true in Scripture or wrong behavior, sinful behavior, behaving in a way that doesn't honor God and doesn't line up with his word, that's not in obedience to him. 
See, James has been clear through his letter about the link between faith or belief and action. For James, they're always tied together. You just can't unhitch them from one another. Wrong doctrine or wrong beliefs leads to wrong action. And equally, the receipt of or acceptance of godly wisdom leads to godly behavior. And conversely, as we read about in chapter 3, worldly wisdom or false doctrine leads to sin. What you believe matters. And the other aspect of it is this, is that actually oftentimes we can be tempted to shape our beliefs or our faith around our behavior. I'll explain what I mean. Well, we, we do something or we feel drawn to do something and we think, well, I enjoy that. It feels good. <laughs> and, you know, I, I can't see the harm in it. It's not so bad, surely. And so we find a way of reading the Bible that actually shapes around our preference and around our view of morality rather than actually seeking to come under the authority of Scripture. We sit over it in judgment and we say, well, actually, I quite like this. I find this enjoyable and I can't see the harm in it. And so I'll I'll kind of find a way of reading this that suits me. Or we find a way of explaining away the bits that contradict our preferences or feelings or that seem culturally taboo. And as we do so, we seek to make God in our image, to make his word simply a prop or a reflection of our desires. Tragically, in the church, people do this. And as they do, as James puts it, they wander from the truth. They turn their backs on Jesus and begin to hope in a false gospel or they abandon faith all together and you know what you don't have to look far to see it maybe you can think of friends who you used to be in church with who are no longer there or maybe high profile leaders whose books you've read or sermons you've listened to who are now deconstructing their faith or or denouncing their faith or maybe blowing up in some huge moral failure. You know, some 60% of young people who grow up attending church, many of whom profess faith in Jesus, end up leaving the church in their early 20s or some point in their 20s. 60% leave church in their 20s. That kind of statistic ought to Shake us up a bit. That's sobering. Do I remember someone sharing that statistic with Jenny and I and a, a group full of guys and girls in their late teens? And I can look at that group of people now and that statistic would hold true. So many of them, the majority of them in fact, are now nowhere with God, have abandoned their faith James knew this would happen. 
The early church were already experiencing it. Even by the middle of the first century when he wrote this letter, it was already beginning to happen. By the time James wrote to them, they were already enduring persecution, which was causing some to abandon their faith. There was false teaching beginning to spring up in the church that was luring people away, drawing people away from the gospel of Jesus. As James pointed out, in in chapter 1, others still were being led away by their own sinful desires. Jesus taught that this would be the case too. He even taught that there would be people who would be so deceived, who would be led astray, and that can be part of wondering, is that they're led astray, but who would even continue to believe that they were saved when in fact they weren't. Guys, this is a sobering reality. But what are we supposed to do about it? What are we to do? Well, James says here that the Christian response to these brothers who wander from the faith is not to shrug our shoulders or to go, well, hey-ho, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not great, but, you know, I'm sure they'll be okay in the end. And, you, you know, they'll get there, God's gracious. And, and neither should our response be to, to condemn them or berate them or speak ill of them. No, instead, we're supposed to care enough that we go after them in a desire to bring them back. See, James continues, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, we should go after them and seek to bring them back. We should go on lovingly and gently trying to help them see where they have wandered from the faith. To pray for them that God would draw them back to himself. Because this is amazing, actually, when you think about it, that God wants to use ordinary Christians, people like you and me, to bring people back to the faith when they go astray. He wants to use people like us to to go after people when they wander astray and restore them to the faith. Jesus actually gives us a model for how we should do this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Let's read this. Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So you see, if a Christian brother or sister is wandering from the truth, is falling into sin, is being led astray, then Jesus says you gently, discreetly speak to them one-on-one. And their response determines what happens next. See, what we long for and what we hope for and pray for as our desire and the intent is not to berate them or condemn them but to restore them this is not 
trying to bash them over the head, but trying to win them back, is that actually if they hear you out and they confess and repent of their sin and turn back to God, then you celebrate with them. Job done. You've won them. That's good news. But if they don't hear you out, well, what do we do next? Well, Jesus says, if they don't hear you out, and, and maybe you've experienced this, perhaps they respond to you out of pride. Maybe they get very defensive and say, well, you know what else Jesus said? You know, he said that, that you shouldn't point out the speck in my eye uh, because you've got a log in yours. Yeah, so, so you know, you need to deal with that kind of tree stump in your eye before you kind of come for the, the little speck in mind. This sin that you want to address with me, this is just a, this is just a small thing. I mean, you need to get yourself straight. <laughs> you can't judge me. I answer to God alone. And Maybe you've encountered that kind of response. Well, what do you do? Well, then you don't get in an argument with them. <laughs> but you also don't just leave them in their sin. You go back with some other Christian brothers or sisters. Jesus says, verse 16, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now it's so key that we get what's happening here. Jesus isn't advocating that you go and get a crew to come and support you so that you can really bash them over the head this time. Jesus is not saying that you, you need to get some cheerleaders to back you up in the browbeating of that individual. No, 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 no. He's interested in the truth being established. Because do you know what? They might have a point. Yeah? There may be stuff that you need to deal with before addressing something with them. Or do you know what else? You might have read the situation all wrong. This might actually be more about a conflict between you and your brother than it is about them and sin in their life. And so you talk again with a couple of trusted, godly people who will hear you both out and help ascertain what's really going on. And if it's clear that they are still living in sin and that you were right to approach them, well then what does Jesus say? 17, if they still refuse to listen, it's clear they're in sin, but they, they still refuse to hear you or the others who have come to hear what's going on, then you should tell it to the church, Jesus says. You know, if it's clear that they are willfully, knowingly living in rebellion against God and his ways, and they won't hear it from you or from others, if they're proud and they won't repent, if they're bent on continuing in their sin, then Jesus says you should tell the church what's going on. Well, why would you do that? Well, you would do it so that others might pray for them and so that others might encourage them too to leave behind their sinfulness and be restored to the faith, to find forgiveness in God. The whole point of this is to bring them back. 
But what if they still don't listen even then? Well, Jesus says if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this doesn't mean be mean to them or avoid them. It means that their refusal to listen, that their stubborn continuance in sin actually reveals that whatever they might think about themselves, that they are not truly a Christian, that they have not truly surrendered themselves to God's will and God's way, that Jesus isn't Lord for them. Because those who are saved, those for whom Jesus is Lord, when you point out sin in their life, there will be a right grief and repentance, a soberness about what they've done, a humility. Now, it might take some loving persistence and patience on the part of faithful brothers and sisters, but they will come back if Jesus is Lord. But if they refuse, Jesus is saying here that, well, they're not truly Christians, and so you should treat them as such. Now, this has some implications for the church. For instance, it would mean that they could no longer share in communion, because that is for believers. And so we would withhold that from them. Paul writes about people like this in his first letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He encourages Timothy to hold on to the faith and a good conscience. He says, because which some have rejected that and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Because they're in trouble. They've shipwrecked their faith. But that doesn't mean you cut them off and have nothing to do with them forever. It means that they need to hear and respond to the gospel. That just as with anyone who is outside of Christ, you should seek for opportunities to love them and share the good news of Jesus with them. So you pray for them. You go after them. You seek for opportunities to win them, but no longer with the assumption that they are already a believer. James continues, if one of you wonders and someone should bring that person back, what happens, he continues, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You know, we've, we've got to briefly notice here, James is talking to Christians, brothers. He says, if one of you should wonder, there's a Christian who's walked away, and then James here says, they're a sinner. Well, he's talking to Christians, to people in the church. And some people will get very upset and very uptight if you call a Christian a sinner, if you use that language of someone who is a Christian. And they'll say, you should never, ever do that, because they're not. Their identity is in Christ, and in Christ, they're a new creation. They're a saint and not a sinner, and so you must not use that language. But yet James doesn't flinch to do so here. 
And although the New Testament generally refers to Christians as saints and as non-Christians as being sinners, James doesn't have any problem using it here. And why is that? Well, this phrase is descriptive of behavior and not identity. Yes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. His, his position before God in Christ is that of someone who is righteous and holy and blameless in Christ. But yet, we still sin. And when you're in sin, James says you're behaving like a sinner. You're behaving as a sinner. That's not in line with your identity with Christ. Stop it! But James says, though, if anyone turns someone from the error of their way, it will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Save them from death. Sounds like kind of extreme, doesn't it? You think, well, Maybe they've just kind of wondered a bit, like, are they really in danger of death? Are they really in that perilous situation? Guys, this is the penalty for anyone who is outside of the grace of God, who is outside of the gospel of Jesus. The Bible is very clear. The wages of sin is death. And if someone goes on in unrepentant sin, they put themselves outside of the grace of God. When we reject God and the life he offers, we receive death instead. This is serious. Guys, this should motivate us. James writes this here to motivate his readers. The stakes could not be higher. This is life and death. We have a responsibility to care for one another. We have a responsibility to help keep one another accountable, to keep reminding one another of the goodness of God and the hope of the gospel, to keep pointing one another towards Jesus. If you love one another, don't just let people wander off. Don't just shrug your shoulders. Go after them. And why does James here say it covers over a multitude of sins? I mean, what if it's just one thing? What if it's just one thing that they've done? I mean, it just covers over that sin? Why a multitude? Well, firstly, James has already told us in chapter 2 that if we break just one aspect of God's law, we break the whole law. We're as guilty as if we've broken all of it. It makes no difference whether you break one aspect or 50. You're just as guilty as a lawbreaker and you are condemned as such outside of Christ Jesus. Breaking the law is breaking the law. Sin in one area makes you just as guilty. And secondly, when you bring them back... <laughs> Remember what you're restoring them to when you bring them back into the truth of the gospel. Into placing their faith and hope in Christ to save them and, and God to forgive them of their sins. 
Well, it's only in the truth of the gospel that all of our sins are forgiven, all of our shame removed, all of our sins paid for by Jesus. And so, of course, a multitude of sins are covered. And there James abruptly ends his letter. Abruptly, perhaps, but on such an important note. Because if we're going to live a life of obedience to God, if we are going to live out what we've read in these past weeks in this letter, we need each other. I need you. If you hear me say something that isn't honouring to God, that doesn't line up with God's word and God's ways. Guys, I want you to talk to me about it. If you see me behaving in a way that, that is sinful, that's in rebellion and doesn't line up with God's word and God's ways, then I, I want you to talk to me about it. I need you because I've got blind spots. I'm going to do stuff sometimes and not even be aware that I'm doing it. I need you. I don't want to wander from the truth. I need brothers who will call me back. And so do you. And so as we conclude this series, I want to exhort you, care enough about one another to speak truth into one another's lives. Pray for one another and pray with one another. Gently and humbly call out sin when you see it. Follow the pattern that Jesus gave us. And you know what else? <laughs> I want to encourage you guys to be humble enough to receive it when someone does that for you. Don't stand rooted in pride and arrogance. Recognize that you need one another. Recognize that you need help. And when someone calls out sin in your life, be humble enough to hear it and to receive it and to respond in confession and repentance. Don't be stubborn and hard-hearted if someone comes to you. All of us have got blind spots. None of us is immune to wandering away. We can guard against it by reading God's word and by praying and by asking his spirit to be at work within us. But we also need to recognize the grace of God in giving us brothers and sisters who will watch out for us. God has placed people around us for our good and his glory. We need one another. I'm going to pray and hand back to Joe. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gift that it is to us that we can get to know you through it. We understand your character and your will and your ways, but we also thank you for it as a gift that we look into it like a mirror and it reveals the ways in which we're not like you and we want to be humble in that and to say, God, would you conform us more into your likeness? Would you help us live in true freedom the way that you have 
designed us to, but I thank you too, Lord, that you don't save us in isolation, but that you put us in the church, in your family. Lord, I thank you particularly that you've placed us in this local expression of that at Foundation Church, and I pray that you would cause us all the more to be a a family of deep care and concern for one another, that we would be brothers and sisters who watch out for one another, who care enough to bring one another back when we see someone wandering from the faith. Lord, I thank you for the gift of fellowship and for the gift of brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray that you would help us to build deep and genuine community for the good of one another and ultimately, Lord, for your glory. Amen.